A woman is viciously attacked in her home late one night and is left for dead. Miraculously, she survives and was able to identify her attempted killer. Though police have a strong eyewitness, lots of circumstantial evidence, and even an implicit confession, they can't prosecute the man they arrested. What caused this investigation to get turned upside down so quickly? And would the true criminal ever be caught? Welcome, welcome, welcome into another episode of Killin' Missin' Hidden, the greatest podcast produced in all of my house. I'm your incredibly talented and charismatic host, Brad. So why am I hosting this podcast? That's mostly because I do all the work on it, but I also, you know, spent some time in the courtroom as a criminal defense attorney, so kind of think I know my stuff a little bit better than most of these podcast hosts who spend more time picking up their wine than they ever have learning about the criminal justice system. I hope this episode finds you well. Personally, I'm finally recovering from the dang sinus infection I've been fighting for over a week. Also real happy to see you joined us yet again for another tale of criminality or something. Um, I'm going to ask up front, even though I normally don't, go leave us a review if you haven't, please. Uh, we need all the five stars we can get, and written reviews still make me smile until my face hurts. Also, jump on our social media bandwagons. We're Twitter, KMH Podcasts, and Instagram at KMH.podcast, just to be annoying. And we also have that little private Facebook group y'all may enjoy. You get the full KMH experience. I'm also going to ask that you take the time to look for and support other independent podcasters like myself. We've let these corporate podcast goons rule the airways for too long. Damn the man and save the indies. All right. Okay. And I normally don't do business up front, but I'm being different today. Just feeling a little sassy. But uh, I'll shut up now. Well, I won't shut up. I'll stop rambling now and we'll jump into our episode. The Bucket of Fun. So our story this week takes place in Laurel, Delaware, which is located kind of in the southwest corner of the state. It's a pretty small town with a population of less than 4,000. You know, it's just your traditional, real working class, blue collar sort of community. Within this town lived Kay Robinson. She was a 32-year-old single mother who lived alone with her 11-year-old son in a mobile home park. They were basically just about as average a family as you would find in this neck of woods back in 1995. Now, on September 19th of this faithful year, 1995, Kay was awoken by the sound of banging on her front door sometime between 1 and 2 a.m. She woke up and went to see what the reason for all the commotion was when she saw a man standing there. Not exactly what you want to see at that hour when you're a single female, right? She asked him, you know, what's going on? What are you doing? And he said, look, my car broke down. Can I just use your phone? 
And she said, no, no, it's too late for you to come in. I mean, if you've got somebody you want me to call, I'll do that. But he was insistent about coming in and she was insistent about him not coming in. And eventually he got ticked off and left. She was a little shaken by the event. So she called 911 and asked, you know, told police what was going on and asked him just to check this guy out, make sure he wasn't up to no good. And they did send an officer out. He, he or she did a patrol through the area, but never found anybody who was wandering around. Didn't find a broken car, nothing like that. So Kay went on to bed. About 30 minutes after turning off the light, she heard banging at her front door again. But it didn't sound the same. It's a little bit different this time. So she got up and headed towards the front door, but on her way there, she was confronted by a man in her kitchen. He had broken in, and uh, he was welding a pretty large kitchen knife. Naturally, Kay goes into full-on panic mode, as most of us would, and the man you know, basically told her, shut up, get in your room. And she hesitantly complied and it wasn't until that they got back to her room he noticed that she had a son slept across the hall from her and he's so then his all his ministers turned towards the son you know lay down be quiet or i'm gonna hurt your son that sort of stuff so she cooperates and he proceeds to tie k up and said, you know, you make any noise at all, your son's dead. So she did what any mother would do. She kept her mouth shut. And then this stranger began to assault this poor woman and torture her. And this lasted for almost three hours. Kay did everything she was told to do. She made no peeps as this man defiled her. And afterwards... The man became kind of talkative, which is odd. And he confessed to Kay that he lived in the same neighborhood. He had two kids of his own. So he didn't want to hurt her. He wanted her to cooperate. But ultimately, he didn't uphold his end of the bargain. When they had uh, finished their evening together, shall we say, he kind of snapped for some reason and wildly began stabbing Kay across her back. There was somewhere between 25 and 30 stab wounds identified in, by police and medical examiners. And several of them were deep, deep wounds. In fact, three or four were made more to her neck area. And paramedics noted that she came awfully close to suffering a decapitation. And during this attack, he kept yelling, Are you dead yet? Aren't you dead? Why aren't you dead yet? Finally, he was convinced that he had finished her off. He stood there for a few minutes to make sure she truly was dead. Then he kind of got up and walked across the hall to the son's room and studied him. The boy appeared to be sleeping, so the intruder left. He made his getaway. But the boy wasn't sleeping. How could he sleep through all this? There was too much commotion going on. As soon as he heard the man leave the house, the boy's eyes shot awake, and he 
dashed over to his neighbor's house. He had seen what happened. He saw that his mom was really nothing more than a bloody mess. And with tears filling his eyes and he was choking on his voice, he banged on the neighbor's door and begged them to call the police because he just couldn't bring himself to make the phone call. Now, police and paramedics responded quickly and found Kay there near death. But they got there quick enough that it wasn't death. She wouldn't die. They managed to save Kay. Now, what's odd about the scene, when paramedics were loading Kay onto a stretcher to take her in the ambulance to get her to the hospital where they could really patch her up right, one of the detectives or one of the officers on the scene noticed something strange on Kay's back. This man who had attacked her and stabbed her and left her to bleed out had actually taken a moment to stop and draw a smiley face in her own blood on her back. Obviously, this was meant to be some sort of mocking gesture. Like we said, miraculously, Kay survived. And not only did she survive, she was... She was a tough broad. She, as soon as she was conscious, she went to the police and she was like, I know what this dude looked like. He left the lights on while he was assaulting me. And I made sure to remember every detail about his face. So they did a composite sketch so that they could have something to go by. It, she also, and I, I mean, how she did this, I don't know. This woman is stronger than I could ever be. While all this is going on, she kept kind of a mental checklist of everything the dude touched to see if police couldn't get fingerprints. Now, he was careful, somewhat careful. Everything he would touch, she would wipe down, but she noticed that there was a blue cup he had grabbed from her kitchen, and he was drinking from that. And sure enough, every time he took a drink, he wiped it down, but when he would wipe it down and then set it back on the nightstand, he would leave a new, fresh set of prints in the process of setting it down. So she told cops, look, fingerprints, it's going to be on that blue cup. You got to check the blue cup. So they do. And when they check it, they notice there are prints on there. But... They were left in kind of a oily type substance. And the police and the forensic investigators are really concerned that, you know, if they tried to pull the prints off, they could smudge the prints accidentally and destroy the evidence. They were also very concerned about, depending on what sort of substance this was, whether or not the prints would melt. So police carefully bagged up this cup, took it to the forensic folks, and they stuck it in a freezer. They, they wanted to try to see if they could make this oily substance freeze so they could preserve the print. Now, police did an initial search around the area. Again, the man said he lived in the neighborhood. They checked around. Didn't really find anybody matching Kay's description. And wanting to make sure they could catch this man as quickly as possible, because obviously this is a very aggressive, very unhinged sexual predator. They went to the media and released 
you know, did a press release and included a picture of the man, the sketch that Kay had helped investigators create. Now, going back to that blue cup, after several days of it being in the freezer, the forensic folks pulled it out and were happy to see that their plan had worked. Whatever the substance was, had frozen. So they were able to pull off not one, but three complete fingerprints. Now, none of them matched what they had in their database at the time. But this was a huge piece of evidence that they could use coming up whenever they found the guy they're looking for. You know, this would help be one of the nails in his coffin. Now, something really strange happened while all of this was going on. Three days after the attack on Kay, before she's even out of the hospital, neighbors called the police and asked them to come out because there was a man lurking around Kay's house. He wasn't just lurking. When police arrived, this man was in front of Kay's front door. He had set up candles and was in the act of praying. It was kind of this impromptu vigil look. Now, you know, police arrive, and of course, they intercept the man before he can leave. They ask him what's going on, and he says he was there because he had heard about the attack in the newspaper, and he wanted to pray that whoever committed this horrible crime was caught. This man's name was Doug De Silva. He was 38 years old, and police... Police found him to be an odd bird. Um, he just didn't strike them right, I think is the best way to describe it. So they, one of the officers keep talking to him, and the other one kind of pokes around, and they notice in his truck that he has a couple odd things. He's got an article about the attack laying there on his front seat. And he's got a copy of the composite sketch in his truck. But it's not just laying on the front seat. It's not laying in the floorboard. He has taped this picture up on his windshield. And they asked him about this, and they said, what are you doing with this drawing taped up on your windshield? Doug said, well, I want to I have that up on the windshield, so as I'm driving around, if I see a man that matches you know, this picture... That way I can call y'all quickly and I don't have to take my eyes off the road or dig around for the picture in my floorboard. It's just boom right there. Now that's odd. And you know, one thing we've probably learned over the years together is a lot of killers like to keep little mementos. A lot of them will keep, you know, little scrapbooks of their killings. And so of course this is going through police's mind, but the most incriminating part of all of this Doug looked exactly like the dude in the sketch and he didn't favor it you know you didn't have to like squint your eyes or blur your vision a little bit to see it uh, Doug was the man in the sketch or rather this, this was a sketch of Doug there was basically no doubt that Doug was the man police were looking for now, I know what some of y'all are saying is it's just a sketch. It could be wrong. It's, you know, a lot of those are so generic. They could apply to lots of people. And you're all correct. You're right. You're right. So let's throw this log on the fire, okay? 
Now, while Doug did not live in the trailer park, in fact, he lived about 100 miles away, um, his ex-wife and his kids lived in that mobile home park. So that kind of is interesting. It makes you wonder why Doug is there again. And we have some more fun facts. Doug also happened to be a person of interest in an ongoing murder investigation involving a high school girl that had been murdered six months before Kay was attacked. But for the officers on the scene, you know, they've got this dude at Kay's house three days after the attack. He looks just like the guy in the sketch. And he's way too interested in this case. Like, he has inserted himself directly into it. So they arrest him. They take him back to headquarters, and they formally interview him. Now, when Doug is being questioned, they ask him about the attack. And he never denied committing the attack. He never admitted to it either. But he never denied it. He would just say things like, I'm so sorry it happened. I wish there was a way to make things right. These are very bad answers to give in case you're ever taken into police custody. You know, they are looking for you to say, I did not do it. That is what most people would say in this situation. But Doug, for whatever reason, is just, oh man, this sucks. I wish it didn't happen. Oh, I wish there was a way we could make this right. Okay, so we're getting even more suspicious of Doug, aren't we? In the middle of his interview, you know, police will oftentimes take a break while they're doing these interrogations. And when one of those breaks occurred, before the officers left the room, Doug said, hey, can, can I have an application? And they were like, an application for what? And he goes... You know, I've always, I've always really wanted to be a police officer. Do y'all have a job application I could fill out? And they kind of said, well, oh, okay, I guess. I mean, why not? This gives them a chance to get his fingerprints without actually having to request them. They get to do some handwriting analysis should they ever need that. He'll, you know, give some background information they won't have to dig around for. So sure, sure. So they give him the job application. Now, a lot of the cops that were involved like reacted really negatively towards this request because they thought he was just kind of mocking him at this point. But they, you know, gave him the application, gave him a pen, and while he's in the freaking interrogation room, he fills out the application. And when he gets done and the police look at it, guess what they find on the last page? Like, you cannot make this up. This is how much fun the world of criminal justice is. On the last page, at the end of his application, Doug has drawn a smiley face. Now, it must be noted that when police released all the details of the case to the media, you know, cops always hold back some evidence. So they can always have that one hidden card they can use to nail down the true murder suspect. And what they chose to leave back this time was the smiley face being drawn on Kay's back. What are the odds that this dude would come in and draw a smiley face on an application while he's being interrogated for an attempted murder charge? 
when the victim had a smiley face drawn on her back in her own blood. So by this point, it's no longer a question of is Doug the person responsible? It's more of can we get enough evidence to make sure we can nail this guy? So the next step police take is they call Kay in to do kind of a photo lineup. Now they've got a picture of Doug and they've got a picture of about five or six other guys that kind of match the description. And Kay sits down, looks at it, instantly picks Doug. She says, that's the guy. No doubt. Wannabe state trooper Doug is the man that attacked. Now, she did ask, Kay did ask, look, do you, by any chance, do you have some sort of recording of his voice? Because that would make me feel like I really, really confident in my, you know, in my decision. And of course, they recorded the interview. So they played back part of it. And she was like, oh, absolutely. That is the voice I heard. This is the man that assaulted me. There's no doubt in my mind. No doubt in my mind. This was the man that was in my house. Just to play it safe, the cops call in Kay's 11-year-old son and ask him to do the same thing. And boom, he picks Doug out of the lineup. So based off this evidence, which is pretty significant, police arrest Doug. He's charged with attempted murder, sexual assault. His response? When he's being told that he's arrested, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't remember doing all this, but if I did, I'm so sorry. So that's it, right? Short episode, we're done. We can go home. Doug did it. But in the immortal words of ESPN personality and former college football head coach, Lee Corso, not so fast, my friends. Despite having all of this evidence against Doug, including the mocking way he had filled out the job application, and including that daggum smiley face at the end of the application, there was a problem. And it wasn't a small problem. Remember the blue cup? They've got fingerprints. Well, Doug's fingerprints don't match. In fact, Police went back through the mobile home and could not find any fingerprints that matched with Doug. Hmm. It's a little troubling. A little troubling, but we've still got lots of other evidence, right? You have Kay IDing Doug. You've got her son IDing Doug. Doug's never denying that he did this. There's that whole stupid smiley face. I mean, it has to be Doug, right? It has to be Doug. And besides, how many cases are prosecuted where there's no fingerprints, right? Okay, so yes, this is a bump in the road. Yes, this is something the defense attorney is going to hammer in on, but we've got all this other evidence. Okay, but I've got more bad news for the story. Because of course I do. If this went smoothly, why would we be talking about it? When Kay went to the hospital, they, as part of their standard procedures, did put out one of their rape uh, kits and tested Kay and were able to collect some DNA samples. 
Doug's DNA did not match the samples they pulled. Right row. Now that's that's a bigger problem. That's a mountain of a problem right there. Like I said, lots of cases are solved without fingerprints being involved. The attacker, in fact, was doing his best not to leave fingerprints. So you could get around that, but the DNA, the DNA that was found in Kay's body, the DNA that had to be from the attacker, and it doesn't match Doug, how do you explain that? I mean, you can't. You can't. You've ex essentially, you've proven that Doug is innocent. And police were so baffled by this. They were caught so off guard that they actually had the forensic folks run the test again. And, you know, again, it said, no, it's, this is not Doug's DNA. There is no match here. And everything kind of blew up at that point. Now, the biggest blow up was from Kay, understandably. You know, she had, there was not a doubt in her body that Doug was the man that had done this to her. And who's going to know better than her, right? She was so upset by Doug being released. She was so upset at the idea of this monster being allowed to roam the free world. She decided she was going to take matters into her own hands. She found out where Doug lived. In fact, she went and bought herself a handgun. And then one night, she drove down to Doug's house, 100 miles away. She was going to engage in a little vigilante justice, you know? I mean, Spider-Man doesn't need DNA matches to bring down the bad guys, right? Superman doesn't look for fingerprints. They watch the crimes happen and then catch the bad guys. And this was Kay's plan. She knew who the bad guy was. She was there. And she was going to take him out and be done with him. So she sits there across the street from Doug's home in the middle of the night with this handgun sitting on her lap and the determination to go kill this man. And after about 30 minutes or so, she decided, you know what? I need to stand down. I can't live with somebody else's blood on my hands. Plus, I can't go to jail and leave my son alone in this world. So she went home. She went home and she put up her gun and she left it to police. But she was still, she was certain Doug was that man. And there had to be a way to catch him. There just had to be. Now, of course, this was also devastating to police, right? The forensic evidence not backing you know, Kay's story. It, it just, it made things fall apart. Once Doug had been identified, all of the police's resources went towards building a case against Doug. Now that he couldn't be prosecuted, they knew that there was, this incredibly dangerous man was still out there and could still prey on women. And they had done nothing to follow up on any other leads because Doug was obviously the guy. I mean, you can't blame him for that, right? I mean, 
they had everything they needed until the forensics came in. And detectives, of course, they admitted, you know, we began to doubt ourselves because we knew that we had the guy until the science showed that we didn't. And so they kind of tore up everything they had done and went back to square one. I mean, they pulled out their notebooks from the day they found out about this crime and started looking over everything in detail to see if there were any new leads, anything that they missed. And they found nothing. They found absolutely nothing. And for the next several years, they kept working the case, but nothing developed. There were no new leads. There was no new evidence, and eventually the case went cold. And so we're stuck in this world where Kay's living knowing that she's never going to get the justice that she deserves. That is until something happens nine years later. Detectives in Maryland, out of the blue, called these detectives in Delaware. And they said, you know, we've got this case, and in researching it, it is awfully similar to this one that y'all had involving Kay and what she underwent in 1995. Their victim was a single mother living in a mobile home, just like Kay. The victim was tied up in her bedroom, just like Kay. The point of entry was a broken window into the house near the front door, just like Kay. And a knife was used to force the woman into compliance, just like Kay. Oh, and this was one of those attacks that lasted for several hours, just, just like Kay. Now, the difference, the main difference, and this is a pretty significant difference, in my opinion, in Kay's assault, the attacker knew that Kay had a son. Well, in the Maryland assault, the attacker was surprised to learn that the victim had a son and kind of freaked out. And in fact, that was when he stopped his assault is when he just happened to notice a picture of the victim with her son. And so he stopped whatever it was he was in the middle of, and he said, look, we're done here, but you got to follow a couple rules. You can't call the police. You go take a shower. You live life as normal, and you'll never hear from me again. And, of course, she promised to do whatever, as you would in that case. And, of course, as soon as the guy was out of the door, call the police she did. When they arrived, guess what they found? Fingerprints. Fingerprints that didn't match anybody that lived in that house. But Maryland police knew who these prints belonged to because they had dealt with this fellow before. A guy by the name of Mark Eskridge. Now, in fairness, you probably could have guessed that based on the episode title. I didn't, uh, I'm no Agatha Christie. I don't, I don't make mysteries very well. Guess what? Turns out old Mark here looked a heck of a lot like the composite sketch that Kay had helped police in Delaware put together. Same problems persisted. The prints on the blue cup did not march, did not match Mark's prints. Ugh. 
And when Kay was called in, she saw a picture of Mark and nope. I know without a doubt that is not the man that attacked me. Double uh. But police look at this and they say there's just too many coincidences here. We've got to investigate this further. And we get some good news. I mean, to the extent that you get good news in a rape attempted murder case, right? Um, our good old boy Mark here just happened to live in the same mobile home park as Kay back in 1995. But again, Kay says, no, I am certain this is not the man who attacked me. Now, we have to understand at this time, there's been a nine-year gap between the attack and Kay looking at photographs of Mark. Not only that, Mark has had nine years to age, to put on weight, to change his look. You know, and memories fade, people change, all that. I mean, even the way he styled his hair, because you know this is a sort of uh, metrosexual type of guy that would go and, no, uh, I'm, I kid, I kid. Um, you know, Kay was just insistent that, no, this is not, this is not the dude. Y'all are barking up the wrong tree. Fortunately, time doesn't matter, though, when it comes to DNA, right? When it comes to science, it's not a big factor. So the Maryland police have uh, Mark's DNA sample. They send it over to Delaware. Delaware runs a DNA test on it. And guess what? We get a match. We get a freaking match. When police let Kay know, she kind of went through this crazy mess of emotions, which again, you kind of would have expected. Obviously, one of them was, oh my God, how close did I come to killing an innocent man? But she was happy that the real attacker had been apprehended. She still struggled with it. She did not remember Mark being the person. The voice didn't sound right and all that, but the DNA said yes, and he had lived close by, and, you know, police thought that what was really going on is Mark apparently, in the Maryland case, and so they assume in this, this in Kay's case, he had kind of stalked his victim for a while. Now, he didn't do a very good job because she didn't know she had, he didn't know she had kids. But he waited until he was certain she was at home alone, watched outside until her lights were turned off, and he did the exact same feel. You know, my car is broken down. I need some help, blah, blah, blah. She wouldn't let him in, and then he ended up having to break in. And again, just like Kay's case. And apparently Mark was using the my car broke down excuse because he felt like, if a man was in the house, then a man would respond to that need. Whereas a woman would be much more likely just to let him in to call somebody to deal with it. It turns out, too, that Mark was very talkative during his attack on this other woman. You know, he told Kay, you know, I live nearby. I've got kids, blah, blah, blah. He did the exact same thing with this woman, except. The only real difference was with Kay, he was more focused on the attack. With the Maryland victim, 
He was having a conversation during the entire two to three hours they were together. Mark ultimately ended up being charged with rape and attempted murder and was convicted in Delaware. He was sentenced to serve life plus 20 years. So uh, Mark probably won't see the light of free day again because he made some bad choices. So isn't that a fun ride of a case? I've I've had this case on my list of episodes to do for a while. Um, And I really enjoy it because it just jerks you around back and forth and back and forth. Uh, You know, I mean, we go from having a man all but locked away for life to finding out he had nothing to do with the crime and that some dude from another state was the real criminal. So let's take a moment. Let's break things down. Maybe learn a little if we're lucky. You know, I would say, again, just for my experience in the courtroom, um, I would beg all of y'all, if you take one thing away from this episode, please know eyewitness testimony is not worth the paper it's printed on. Kay was certain Doug had done it. She was certain that was the man who attacked her. And how could you forget the face of the man that did these horrible things to you, right? And she said, she told police, she told everybody that she talked to, I made a point to remember because I was going to survive and I was going to get this guy. I was going to put him in jail. And on the flip side, when she sees a picture of Mark, she's just as certain that is not the man that came into my house. I've never seen that man before in my life. The one person who above all else would want to see the right man convicted was wrong. And so, I mean, because of how emotionally charged she was in getting this man put in jail, getting the right man put in jail, it's safe to say, in my opinion, she wasn't lying. She wasn't out to get dug for some reason. She was doing her best. She did her best. She did her best. And she was wrong. She was dead wrong. If it hadn't been for the DNA, Doug would be sitting in prison today and Mark would be out doing more bad things. Now, this doesn't mean that eyewitnesses are always wrong. But for some reason, we as humans think that if somebody points a finger at somebody else, They're right. You don't get that sort of stuff wrong. But memory is a funny thing, and it's not trustworthy. You know, you can't make a critical decision best solely on what others claim to have seen. And thank God we've got things like DNA to help prevent travesties of justice like this from happening. I'm also a little critical of the Delaware police because they did not ask the one question they should have. Once they identified Doug as a perpetrator, they had every reason in the world to believe that he was their guy, but they did not nail it down. 
they had specifically held back the information about the smiley face being drawn on Kay's back, and they never asked him about that. They just assumed that because he had drawn a smiley face on his application, he was admitting that he had drawn a smiley face on Kay's back. They never asked. They just assumed. In my experience, assumptions like this happen way too often. Lots of police work is built around supporting the theory or the story they're working with rather than trying to identify holes or filling in the weak points of the story. I mean, as they did here, they must have known about the smiley face when they were interviewing him because they made such a big deal about him drawing it on his application. And that is what allows folks like me to make a living. Every case I won was due to incomplete or poor police work. Either they got the wrong guy or they didn't fill in all the details to ensure they had the right guy. It's almost, police would rather, and I'm generalizing here, of course. I mean, there are lots of good cops out there. Lots of good detectives. But I would say the average or worse officer would rather just make a sketch of the crime and not worry about filling in the details. When to secure a conviction, you need a detailed map. You have to have every hole filled in. And that makes sense under our system because you're locking a man in a cage for the rest of his life for a crime like this. You are locking a man in a cage, right? Why would you not just ask that question, what was on her back? Because if he can't say a smiley face was, that's when bells should have started going off. And they wouldn't have gotten so focused on Doug that they lost sight of all their other possible leads. This crime could have been solved much more quickly had they asked that one question. Now, this also leads us to another question. Why on earth didn't Doug ever say, I didn't do this? I mean, what's wrong with this man? <laughs> and the short answer is, I have no idea. I've got a link in my show notes to some statistic and articles and stuff about false confessions. But here's what I want you to know. They happen. I don't know why, but they happen. And they happen a lot. That is why police have gotten in the habit of holding back evidence so they can weed out false confessions. I mean, like some of these stats, it's like since 2009 and criminal convictions have been overturned, 25% of them involved convictions that were based on false confessions. If you ask jurors, whenever they've polled jurors, they've done studies about this. I mean, you're talking about nearly 100% have the belief that nobody in their right mind would admit to committing a crime they hadn't done. And I would dare say that for most reasonable people out there in the world, yeah, you're going to get pretty close to 100% from them too. In fact, juries have convicted in four out of five cases where a false confession has been made. Now, how do the police get these false confessions? 
they're either too overbearing and just beat the poor suspect down until they give a confession, or they're dealing with a suspect who has some sort of mental issue, be it like a true diagnosed mental handicap or just some sort of oddity in the way they live life and view the world. I don't, it's, it's something like that. But we have to realize as a society <laughs> and people who sit on juries have to understand and believe and even prosecutors and police need to be aware of this. And I think, I do think the criminal justice system has done a very good job in educating police officers and prosecutors in this risk. And that's why we see things like evidence being withheld and all that to help confirm whether or not a suspect is truly guilty. But I mean, we all need to be aware that false confessions happen. And I remember an officer telling me one time, some it was in some little city and there's just one of these brutal like murders of an entire family and it ended up being some drug related debt that the son had gotten into and you know the the dealers had to act all tough and all that and kill the entire family because for some reason that's going to get your money quicker i don't know i don't travel in those circles but they had, I just remember this older officer telling me one day in court, they had like this 86-year-old woman come and confess to it. I mean, she was so frail that she couldn't have done this crime. She couldn't have killed all these people, especially I think the husband's head was bashed in with a baseball bat. This was, you know, the female Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. She didn't have the strength to hurt anybody with a baseball bat. But she came in and confessed. And there's a lot of a lot of cops believe, and there's probably studies on it. I've never looked into it, that you'll get a lot of false confessions from people who are bored, have really nothing in their life. You know, maybe they go to work and come home and that's about it. And they figure this way they can at least get some notoriety. People will know who they are. They'll be remembered. And that's why you have to be so careful. Now, I'm happy to report they did not arrest that 86-year-old woman for that crime, but that's what you deal with. And, I, you know, when I tell my friends this, they laugh because it's almost something from a sitcom. I mean, it's like something you would see on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, right? But it's true. It happened. So... Take that with you, store it in your general knowledge of the criminal justice system. You can't believe eyewitness testimony, or that's not a fair statement. You have to take eyewitness testimony with a grain of salt. It is not, it is not, should not be found the same level as, you know, biblical testimony that's been recorded in the Bible. And people are going to confess for weird and strange reasons. And that's what we see here, isn't it? Why did Doug never say I didn't do it? Why did he? I mean, he didn't do it. He was there for whatever reason, praying that they catch the killer. And he never said, well, it wasn't me. Why would I be out there praying if I was the one that did it? Anyway, 
Thank God for the forensic science in this case. Thank God for it in most cases, because when the tests are run cleanly, it makes everything so much simpler. You know, you can't argue with cold, hard science when it's conducted properly, which is a whole different issue. <laughs> um, I learned of this case first from the TV show Forensic Files. And as part, uh, if you want to watch it, it's season 13, episode 21. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, I'm sure it's on Discovery Plus, maybe Netflix too. Um, I've got that information in the show notes as well. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that little trip down Insanity Lane. Uh, you know, poor Kay. I would feel awful. It, uh, and she has to. I mean, she said herself, you know, how close did she come to killing an innocent man? How close did she end up putting an innocent man away for life? And she was wrong. She was mistaken. Whew. All right. Let me calm down. We need to calm down with the palate cleanser, okay? Now, this one's surprisingly not related to today's episode because there's not really a whole bunch of kid jokes that discuss sexual assault, right? At least I hope there's not. My kids better not know them, at least. All right, so here's what we've got instead. Here's what we've got. What can you add to soup to turn it into gold? What can you put in soup and have it magically change to gold? All you have to do is put in 14 carrots. Boom! Another golden joke from the golden sun, right? Go mystery life. All right, well, that concludes another edition of your favorite podcast that utilizes child labor to entertain you. I hope you enjoyed the story. As you can probably tell, I sure did. Um, maybe you learned something new. Hope you did. Hope you'll stick all this in your, your memory banks. We'll be back with a new episode someday. Probably next week, but in this crazy world, who the heck knows? That's the plan. Probably next week. So on behalf of the two cats who slept at my feet while I finished writing this episode draft, I wish you all a wonderful and safe week. Right out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.